Good morning and uh, welcome to our online services. Such a joy and delight to see all of you. And happy Father's Day to all our dads out there, spiritual dads, dads-to-be, and those of you who have been fathers to those that God entrusts to you. We have a wonderful passage uh, for our uh, reflection and discussion this morning about the wonderful heart of God, how He um, turned the hearts of His people to come back to Him even though they have sinned against him. So I just want to invite us to uh, perhaps pause, even as we pray that the Lord might guide us through this time of discussion and reflection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that even as we learn from your word, that your spirit will turn our hearts to seek you out so that we can come back to you and be revived and renewed by your love and faithfulness. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Last month, the New York Times uh, had an article about Walt Disney as a company. As you might know, Walt Disney has become a huge conglomerate with uh, properties, movie studios, um, you know, um, superheroes, the Marvel uh, series of movies you might be aware of, and all those wonderful resorts that they had. Now, when the COVID uh, crisis struck them, uh, what was their strength uh, became actually weaknesses because a lot of these properties that cruise ships as well, hotel resorts, theme parks, obviously um, depended a lot upon tourists and tourism. And uh, of course, the COVID situation uh, made their life very difficult indeed. In, in fact, holding all those assets and through these months of idle uh, was a huge hit upon their financial results. Uh, I, I believe they lost over... 1 billion USD, almost, almost half of their uh, normal profits for that quarter. So what seems to be actual strength and sources of confidence and power could turn out to be sources of weakness during times of crisis and disastrous situation. I'd like to talk to us about the situation in uh, Elijah's day. God's people in Elijah's day at that time was a divided nation. Last week, Pastor Shin preached about um, uh, past, uh, what you call it, King Solomon, and the kingdom of Israel was, of course, at that time united under King Solomon, and in fact, it was at its height of power and glory. But the kingdom broke up uh, during the time of Solomon's son, and they became two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, or normally called Judah. So they were a divided people between north and south. And they were a people of divided faith as well. They were worshippers of Yahweh, the God of Israel, who revealed himself to them at Mount Sinai during the Exodus under Moses. But during the time of the kings, slowly, they began to adopt the practices and beliefs of the surrounding tribes and nations around them. Now, both kingdoms went into uh, idolatry throughout the years, but Israel, the northern kingdom, went into a downward spiral in quite a serious manner. At the time of Elijah, uh, King Ahab was the king of Israel, and he had married Je Jezebel, uh, who was the worshipper of the Canaanite gods. And in fact, King Ahab himself built a temple 
uh, to Baal, one of the uh, major gods of uh, those surrounding tribes. And so Israel, God's people, was not in a good state. Baal was believed to be the god, the storm god, the god of fertility, the god that brought good weather, favorable rains, sunshine or whatever, that brought life and fertility to the land. Now this was a quite a tempting snare for the people of Israel. The people of Israel, much like the surrounding uh, nations or tribes around them, was basically an agricultural society. And being an agricultural society, you obviously depended heavily on getting uh, the right amounts of rain and sunshine to make sure there's good crop and there will be good harvest. And so the worship of Baal, this so-called god of the storm or, or the God that brought life and rain was an important factor that drew the hearts of God's people away from pure worship into a compromise with this supposed God that brought rain and good weather and good harvest. And so God's peoples began to stray away from the true worship of Yahweh their God, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, um, uh, Isaac and Jacob, and they eventually adopted these practices, not because perhaps they, they were disgruntled with Yahweh, the God of their forefathers, but perhaps because they felt they had to pay homage uh, to this other God that they heavily depended on. His grace, his good favor was uh, important for them to make sure that they were in his good books so that they have a good harvest. But that was the start of a, down, a downward spiral of the religious or faith life of God's people. Now, the passages that we have read this morning and we will focus on is about how God redeems his people. What would God do to bring his people back to him? And we're going to see three key stages of how God dealt with his people. He brought them to a place of renunciation, that is to get them to recognize the folly of depending on a false God that could not help them in the end. He wanted the people to be in a place of renunciation. And God did that by disarming the supposed powers of Baal. So that's the first stage that we're going to look at. The second stage is how God turn the hearts of his people so that they might be able to return to him. And God did that by a demonstration of God's sovereign power, especially over the supposed powers of Baal. And lastly, God revived the hearts of his people. God brought revival. He declared that rain will come back to the land. And so, in these three major moves, we see God's love for his people to bring them back into a living relationship with him. And so we want to look at how God first worked in the hearts of his people to start to bring them back to him. God wanted to bring his people to a place where they would realize their mistake, their misplaced hope and confidence in Baal, so that they might come to a place to renounce their false worship of Baal. And God did this by disarming the supposed power of Baal. 
We read in uh, 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, that God sent Elijah to face off with King Ahab, where Elijah declared that there will be a drought in the land. There will be no rain. The crops will suffer. The people's lives will suffer. However, this must be seen in the larger context of God's redeeming heart to start to turn the hearts of His people back to Him. What God was demonstrating was that the supposed power of Baal to bring rain, to bring life, to bring good harvest was actually a false claim. And so when God stopped the rain, effectively, God disarmed the supposed power of Baal. So Baal was shown to be powerless against the declared word of the God of Israel. Baal failed to give true security in the one thing that he was supposed to give to benefit his worshippers, he absolutely failed in the face of God's declaration of drought. And you can see that after three years, we didn't read uh, completely uh, chapter 17 and 18, but in between uh, Elijah's first uh, declaration of that drought, uh, there's an intervening time of three years. So it has been quite a prolonged process of no rain. And of course, there will, you can imagine there will be a level of discomfort and suffering uh, in the life of the nation. And so after three years, you can see that the hearts of the people start to waver. We read this in chapter 18, um, second part of verse 21, where Elijah confronts the people of Israel. And he told them this, how long would you waver between two opinions? So you can see that the three years of drought has shaken, at least caused the people to waver between Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, and Baal, that false God. Now, they have not come to their absolute place of renunciation yet, but by Elijah's own words, they have been perhaps over the past three years, the previous three years under the drought, they might have been wondering if, you know, Baal was so powerful, why not bring rain? Why can't he bring us good harvest in this situation of the drought? And so the past three years, even though they have not come to a place of renunciation, was a place of crisis, a crisis of faith where they needed to now decide a very pivotal, important point in their spiritual life where they need to decide whom would they worship. And the word of the Lord says uh, through um, Elijah, if the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. What the people has practiced previously was not an absolute abandonment, so to speak, of the God of their ancestors. It was a mix. They had mixed loyalties. They perhaps clung, clung to some form of faith and belief in the God of Israel, but evidently they started to give in or at least pay homage to the power of Baal. And, and Elijah is telling the people, you can't have 
two masters. You cannot serve two gods. And Elijah's word to them is, if you believe that the Lord is God, then you should be wholeheartedly devoted to him. And so the hearts of the people, after three years of drought, has started to waver. Um, God has disarmed the so-called power of Baal so that now the people are in a position to see who the real, true and living God was. God in Christ Jesus brought the ultimate disarmament of the dark powers of sin and death. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, the parts of the people, in fact, the people of the whole world, were held in bondage by the powers of sin and death. Idolatry is part and parcel of the powers of sin and death. And though there was a sort of a deliverance, and many times God delivered his people, as we read in the Old Testament, the ultimate deliverance of God came through his son, the sacrificial death of his son on the cross. And Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, that through his death, Christ disarmed the powers and the, of darkness and sin. Why is that so? The powers of evil and darkness thought they won the victory over Christ. Christ came as the Son of God, as the Messiah. And so when they put him on the cross, the powers of darkness and sin thought that they had won. But God transformed that shameful, ugly death upon the cross as a means by which God would deliver His people and indeed all the nations of the world from the grip of power and death, of the grip of sin and wickedness. You see, the power of the cross breaks the power of sin and death over us so that we can come into a new and living relationship with God. This morning, I want to ask us this. Who or what have we placed our trust and confidence in? My small group uh, is currently doing a study uh, by Max Lucado, taken from uh, Psalms 23. And uh, his main point is that through life, we tend to collect luggage, and it could be luggage of um, old bitterness, unforgiveness, shame and guilt, and um, the other considerations that we might have, our, you know, uh, our, our ambition to be successful, etc. And so we, uh, throughout our life, we tend to collect a lot of these luggages. And to the extent that every luggage, every piece of luggage, bondage, burden, fears, anxieties, um, unforgiveness, our ambition to do well, our desire to have a status of popularity. All of this, if we are not careful, will exert 
a power over us. Without realizing it, we pay homage to these powers of shame, guilt, lust, ambition, bitterness, unforgiveness, and others because they have a hold on our thoughts and upon our hearts. But I want to let you know that God has set you free in Christ Jesus. God sent His Son to die upon the cross to set you free and to set me free so that we are no longer beholden to the powers of sin and death. And so I want to invite you to reflect and examine over the past few months perhaps that the former things that we have placed our joy, our confidence, our hope in perhaps have been misplaced and perhaps the last few months of the COVID situation has uh, disarmed some of our hopes and sources of strength. But you know, God is an ever gracious and compassionate God. He, he never fails to hear our cries and He never fails to bring us back to Him. And now we come to the second stage of God's redeeming love for His people to bring Him back to Him. This is the, this is the stage where God starts to move the hearts of His people, to turn the hearts of His people back to Him. And He did this through a demonstration of His sovereign power. This is what the word of the Lord says in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 24. This is where Elijah is having this titanic face-off or clash with the prophets of Baal. And so he challenged the prophets of Baal and, of course, in a larger context, the people of Israel were gathered there as well. So it was also a challenge to them. And this is what Elijah said to the prophets of Baal and the rest of the people. Then you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, He is God. And so in this so-called titanic clash, Elijah is challenging the prophets of Baal to set up, they're going to set up two altars basically, they're going to put the sacrifice of a bull uh, on the altar, and so Elijah is challenging them to say, if Baal is really God, then let him then answer by fire to accept the sacrifice of his prophets or his uh, devotees and burn up the sacrifice. And so this is what they did. Uh, the prophets of Baal went into a frenzied um, ritual of calling upon their God to uh, burn up the sacrifice. Nothing happened. And uh, obviously, uh, Elijah couldn't help uh, uh, throwing them some sarcastic remarks to uh, encourage them to call a little bit louder, perhaps. Maybe, you know, their God was asleep or not paying attention. And so they went into this frenzied uh, ritual of cutting themselves out with blood. And this is, uh, you know, something that they actually did as well to uh, show their devotion to Baals. And so they cut up themselves and practically took the whole day and the word of the Lord, if you read in uh, chapter 18, no one answered. No one paid attention. There was no response from their supposed 
God. And now it came for the time of Elijah. And what he did was make the challenge even more difficult for himself. He asked the people to you know, uh, dig a trench and then they poured water over the sacrifice so that you know, it's, it couldn't be a natural spark that perhaps uh, randomly started the fire, right? They poured water and a lot of waters around that sacrifice. And then he called upon the name of the Lord. And we read in uh, verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And so despite the whole sacrifice, the altar, the, 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 the meat on the altar, the fire just went and consumed all of that. But what moves me most is how Elijah prayed that God would answer him. We see this in the previous verse, in uh, verse 37. And Elijah prayed this, prayed this way, Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. It is not even the fact that the people came into a sudden realization of their guilt and their sin and then make a righteous determination to come back to God. It was actually God Himself, His grace, His redeeming love that would initiate that spark of repentance in the hearts of His people to turn their hearts back to Him. I'd like to suggest to you that the fire of heaven, the fire sent by God, should have fallen upon His sinful people. They have sinned against Him. They have wronged the true God of Israel. And so they should have experienced judgment at that point because of their disloyalty. But God had provision, a substitute sacrifice. I'd like to suggest to you that the fire of the Lord that should have fallen upon His rebellious, idolatrous people fell instead on that sacrifice that killed oxen, that stood in substitution for the sin and idolatrous idolatrous faith of his people. It's common to uh, hear the notion that the Old Testament God is uh, very strict, um, you know, terrible justice, only ready to ever, you know, punish us and bring his wrath upon us. But that is a mistaken view because although God proclaims judgment and does bring judgment, to the repeated rebellion and sinfulness of his people. The Old Testament is just shot through with God's mercy and compassion. And there's no better illustration of the Father heart of God through his redeeming grace to initiate that turning of his, the people, the hearts of his people back to him. There's no demonstra greater demonstration 
of the mercy of God that provided a substitute sacrifice that took on that fire of judgment instead of his people. In Jeremiah, we read this about the Father heart of God in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 20. He says, it's not Ephraim, my dear son. Ephraim is another term that was used for the northern kingdom of Israel. And so despite their long-running rebellion and disobedience against God, this is what God says, it's not Ephraim, my dear son. This, at this point, God has proclaimed or uh, 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 declared a lot of judgment against his people. But yet his father heart for them shone true. And he says, It's not Ephraim, my dear son, the child in whom I delight. Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion on him, declares the Lord. This is not a picture of an angry God that is always waiting to visit punishment and His wrath on His people. This is a picture of God's broken heart when He has to speak judgment against His people. And so, I'd like to ask you um, to come to a point where we remember the Father love of God. Paul says this in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. He says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died in our place, where we were in a position to receive God's righteous judgment for our sin and our unbelief, God provided a sacrifice to take our place. In the days of Elijah that we just saw, the passages that we just saw, that sacrifice of the oxen, the bull, was the substitution, so to speak. But ultimately, God demonstrates his love for us by the sacrifice of his son, that he made his son the sacrificial atonement, that sin offering, if you will, so that the judgment that should have fallen upon us fell upon his son. I'd like us to perhaps ponder how in the past few months, the ways in which God might have moved your heart to come back to him. You might have uh, been very convicted with uh, a passage from scripture by a prayer of a family member or friend. And if you have a, perhaps a special word that has been so meaningful to you uh, from the Bible, I perhaps invite you to keep that in mind. And later on in the reflection and discussion, you might be moved to share that with others as well. You can, if you're on our live uh, penangtrinity.org, there's a chat function, as you would know, you can perhaps share that portion of scripture that has been particularly moving to you and so that others might be blessed and be encouraged as well. If you are viewing this from YouTube, uh, 
you can use uh, the comment section and perhaps share with others as well that word of the Lord that uh, God has moved you in various ways over the last few months. But, but there might be some of you who are listening who have never come to a living relationship with God. And perhaps it could have been uh, maybe some obstacles or events in the past that perhaps prevent you. Some of you perhaps feel afraid to come before God. Others might be thinking this might not be the right time. But you know, the present time is always the best time to come to God, to know Him. I'd like to invite you, if God has been moving your heart, perhaps over the past few months, that there is no better time to experience the Father heart of God. And so I'd like to invite you, uh, if you have that desire to come to know the living God, if He has been moving you to Him, uh, you can request for a prayer uh, again on the lifepenangtrinity.org. You can request for a prayer and pastor and other church leaders can pray with you. Or you can request for a private Zoom session with pastor after our service through a special Zoom link that we will share with you later. It will be a one-on-one -on -one session and if you have that longing to receive God's love and forgiveness, I'd like to invite you uh, to take and seize this moment to come to God. For the rest of us who have been Christians for a long time, through many years perhaps, perhaps we too have been jaded. We too have perhaps in various ways strayed away from God. And perhaps God has moved us over the past few months as He has disarmed all our misplaced faith and misplaced confidence. Perhaps now is the time to come back to God. Perhaps God has been moving your heart to return to Him. Again, if you like prayer and uh, a time of ministry, later after the service, I just want to invite you to uh, have that opportunity uh, through the special Zoom link that we'll share to come and have a time of prayer and a renewal before the Lord. Lastly, and a little bit more quickly now, I want to talk about how God revised the heart of His people. And God started the revival even before the people repented. And this is, you know, again, something that just moves me. Uh, because God already declared through Elijah, in fact, God told Elijah in um, uh, chapter 18, verse 1, that I will send rain upon the land. And that rain is a symbol, a sign of God's renewal, uh, God's revival of His people. After three years of drought, now the rains of revival will come. And the wonderful thing is that God had determined to bring renewal and revival to the hearts of His people even before they fully came back to him. But Elijah, even though God had declared that he will bring rain, Elijah had to take the step of faith to wait upon God after that climatic uh, confrontation with the prophets of Baal, after the trial by fire, so to speak. Now Elijah had to act in faith 
and to come before God, to wait upon Him so that, so that God might fulfill His promise, His word, to bring the reins of revival. And so we read in uh, uh, chapter 18, verse 42, that uh, Elijah climbed on top of the mountain and he bent to the ground and he uh, put his face between his knees. This is a posture of fervent prayer. He is digging his heels on the ground and he is interceding that God might fulfill his word and bring the reins of revival. And he told us his servant who was with him, go and look towards the sea. He is expecting the rain crowds to come from uh, seaward uh, direction. And so his servant went up and looked. And the report was there's nothing there. It's clear blue skies, um, uh, no sign of rain. And he, again and again, uh, Elijah prayed and persisted in prayer. No sign of rain, absolutely not. And did this for seven times, praying and asking his servant, please take a look out and see whether that sign, that wonderful sign of God's promise has come. And seven times he went, and it's only upon the seventh time that his servant reported, yes, there is a, a, a small sign of cloud, the size of a man's hand rising from the sea. And that was the first sign, that visible manifestation that what God was bringing, the rains of revival. Eventually, heavy rain came, and God fulfilled His promise. But in order to intercede and to persevere on the part of Elijah, he had to wait and pray. He had persevering prayer, and it was not just repeating prayer and just persevering with it, it was, I believe, a struggle. It is a contending prayer, if you want, if you will, where the prophet is wrestling in the inner man, in the, his, his spiritual man, he's wrestling before the throne of God to bring that promised reign. I was listening to a sermon uh, by Pastor Bill Johnston uh, a while ago, and he was sharing about his... Uh, personal testimony when he was about 10 or 11 years old. Um, he had a younger brother who was uh, 11 months old. And uh, the younger brother fell sick and uh, went to hospital. Uh, the doctors um, prepared the family and said, the, um, you know, the, the, the child is going to die in a few hours. He won't have much uh, longer to live. And um, Bill's uh, grandparents lost a child uh, when that child was also 11 months old. And so, now in the present context, when their grandchild, their grandson was 11 months old, they found um, the same situation, right? That the grandson is near death. And so you can imagine the floods of memory and the agony and the grief of all those many years ago must have just come flooding back to them. But uh, Pastor Bill shared that um, his grandfather in the living room just sank on his knees, dug his heels to the floor and interceded at the sofa. And he prayed there a very, very long time. And it was a contending prayer. It was a struggle. It was a wrestling interceding for the life of his grandson. And after an extended period of time, the grandfather stood up and said, he is going to be all right. You see, 
that period of struggle before God led to breakthrough that he knew for sure that God's word will be one of deliverance and healing. And so true enough, the parents went to the hospital and uh, it was a complete turnaround. The doctors could not explain what happened, but uh, the, the, the life of the child was uh, restored. It is not just about persevering. If we want to be serious about seeing God's revival in our day, it must not just be perfunctionary prayer. It must not just be, yeah, let's have a little bit more patience. It is about perseverance, but it is also about contending before the throne of God, that God's revival will come upon our lives, the life of God's people, and then to the rest of the nations. But as we wait on God, I have a sense that sometimes God is also waiting upon us. 2 Chronicles 16 verse 9 says, The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose heart are fully committed to Him. And so it's not automatic. It's not automatic that if God gives a word of promise and a word of revival, it's not automatic that the hearts of His people will be ready and you know, they, you know, automatically they will be obedient, they will be faithful, they will take on the challenge. Um, there is a seeking of God to see the hearts of those who will be completely committed, to be completely loyal, to be willing to take that prayer of contention, to be able to, to pray until they see the day of the Lord's coming, to see the day of God's revival. God often waits for His people to be ready for revival. God chooses to revive the hearts of His people first before releasing a wider work of transformation in society and nation and nations. You recall that uh, I quoted from uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, where Christ, through the cross, made a public spectacle over the powers of sin and darkness. And so your life and my life is not just about a private spirituality. Yes, that's integral uh, part of our life of discipleship and faith. But it is not supposed to be kept private. Your life, if you have come to Christ, your life must be a public demonstration of God's power, of His power to love, of His power to forgive, of His power to save. Likewise, when we think about revival, when we think about national transformation, the life of God's people, His church, His body of Christ, must be a public demonstration of God's power. The public demonstration of His love and redeeming grace. I'd like to invite you to reflect. How would you live differently for God in this new season of tremendous change and uncertainty? <music>